Welcome to today's Life Coach Pod show. I'm very excited to have a friend of mine, Michelle Quay. Uh, is that how I say it, Michelle? Yes, you got it right. Michelle mm-hmm. Quay as a guest. Um, I met her through coaching, which was fantastic. And she has a great story. And she's here to talk about how to deal with and manage self-perception, which I think is really an uh, interesting topic. But first, we're going to go through our usual um, calibration of reminding everybody what day it is. It is Friday, April 17th, or March 48th, if you're keeping the stay-at-home calendar. We have some great tests coming up next week. I'm going to have Motivation Monday. I have Kim Johnson coming to talk about, honestly, about suicide. It should be very interesting. We're going to have an Earth Day celebration. I have a guest I want to get, but I need to confirm that I can get her. And then Elizabeth Reed will be here to talk about cutting through the clutter. Uh, This show goes out as a shout out to my mom. And then uh, Stephanie Simpson will be here to talk about rethinking stress. Good time to do that. I think everybody in some ways is feeling a little less uh, situationally stressed. We still might have the stress of being broke or trying to make ends meet or being with our loved ones for way too much time, but it's really a different kind of stress right now. So I think it's going to be a great topic. For today's time capsule moment, I wanted to do something a little bit different. There was an article that came out uh, yesterday, April 14th, right? Oh no, three days ago, sorry, in the Atlantic. And it's a great article and you should go look at it and take a read. It's called Our Pandemic Summer. But I wanted to just take you through some of the highlights because it's a way of thinking about this pandemic and what we're going through. There's so much noise, so many people that have an opinion. And while our thought leaders and our scientists are trying to tell us what's going on, that's easy for them to get um, lost in the melee of politics, which I guess I'm so stupid because I just never thought a pandemic would be political. I kind of thought it just would be like, it's just true. There is a pandemic and it's just true that you need to take care of yourself and protect your neighbors. If you're a civic minded kind of person who wants to exist in a world that looks something like what we had before a pandemic, that it would require a certain amount of of community cooperation and um, compliance, quite frankly. So this um, writer, Ed Yong, has written about pandemics before, and he's written about epidemiology and those kind of things. So he's well-suited to write this article. What he's done is talk to a bunch of experts, and he essentially said there's four phases to making to helping us come back. Or, and coming back is not even the right word. He'd tell you you're not going to come back. So he talks about just the idea of reopening, we're going to need a lot of testing, but here's the, here's the rub, and this is a big deal, and it's starting, finally making its way into news reports today. But the problem with testing right now is we're running out of the materials that are required to do the testing. So there are chemical ingredients that are running low, and they're becoming more scarce as the pandemic spreads. So mind you, really in terms of a pandemic, we've seen hot spots, folks. We have not really seen it move through the country the way we've seen it move through hotspots. So yes, it's still here. You can't see it. Think of it like love or God or Santa Claus. It's something that's there that you can't see, but it does exist. And so what's happening is that we're running out of the chemicals we need to make these tests, including then some of the materials as well, like the long, um, the very long swabs. And then also the crucial medical drugs that we need to support people who are in care, like on ventilators or pre-ventilator, we're running out of those medicines. You don't want to be on a vent and be conscious at the same time. From what I understand, that is pretty close to being in hell. If you're going to be on a ventilator, they want to make sure that you're comfortable and that they've basically knocked you out so you don't fight that feeling. Well, we're running out of those drugs, but we're also running out of things like albuterol. So that's a big deal for anybody. It, now, now, if you want to say, this isn't me, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm fine, unless you have asthma, and then you're going to need that albuterol, but we're running out. So you need to understand that the things that we need to reopen, they're in critical supply. Same with, again, the personal protection equipment, masks, all of that. We've still got to protect our medical workers, our EMTs, our first responders, our police, the people who help us keep the rhythm of the nation going, they're going to need protective equipment, bus drivers, 
uh, transport drivers, all those folks that interact heavily with the public. And then, of course, he states there's not going to be an obvious moment for when everything is under control. You're not just going to wake up and think, ah, oh, it's regular life and now we're going to be back to normal. Nope, that's not how it's going to work. He has this great quote in here. We've never faced a pandemic like this before in modern times, so we're going to have to be flexible. So everybody out there who's losing it, I'm losing it too. My daughter and I talked about it over breakfast. We're right on the edge and yet we're kind of not. We're okay. We're going to survive. It's going to be okay. So um, there's really not a playbook for this. Then he talks about recalibrating, which is, I think a lot of us are thinking about that. How will the world look different? How can we do this differently? How can we change our behaviors in a way that we can still be social or still have a good time with our friends? That's what my daughter was lamenting this morning. I just want to go have a good time. I totally feel you. I guess I'll put on crazy music tonight and dance for her. No, that's not a good time. Anyway, that's recalibrating is really what the opportunity is here. And so there is a good reason. He states there's a good reason to open the U.S. slowly and methodically. A lot of people are talking about antibody testing. And this is important because we can deduce how many people that have been infected. But here's the deal. If it's anything, if it's low numbers of infections, so right now, if we had 20% of the population, to so think of the whole United States, if 20% of the population was infected, we'd be in pretty good shape. That would really indicate that there's been resilience, a lot of people have had it, didn't even get sick, that sort of thing. But the problem was we don't know. And it's much more likely we're at a 1% to 5% rate of infection. And if that's true, then we have a really devastating virus on our hands and we haven't built up immunity in the population. And we're gonna need that immunity in the population to really become hardy and survivors. So what they're suggesting is maybe we're gonna use different ways to do contact tracing so we know who we were with last before we got sick, that sort of thing. And technology can help, but it of course raises the issue of privacy, which is a big deal. People are very worried about giving up their privacy and yet, um, people who think about these things, I have a quote in here, strategically sacrificing our privacy might be the best way to protect our freedom. It could be. I'm using an app called Lifecycle, and in there it tracks where I take my phone. So if I forget to take my phone, it doesn't track where I go, but I'm willing to have it tracked because, well, I was once a suspect in a murder. So ever since then, I've been paranoid about being able to have a have an um, alibi, which is just like too much about me there. But the thing about life cycle is now whenever we have contact, like there's a delivery or anything like that that's happened um, with Katie and I, I make sure I write it down in my life cycle notes to know, oh, that's the day we went to the nursery. Here's how we did it. We had masks and gloves. Like, so I can make a note. It's basically my contact tracing that I'm doing myself right now. The app is amazing, by the way. If you like it, it's called Life Cycle. I also use Sleep Cycle and Power Nap, three apps. Love those people, great apps. Um, okay, so this isn't gonna look like a normal summer in America. And I think that's the one thing that, that nobody's saying loud enough. I, I believe Andrew Cuomo was saying that today and Governor Newsom was saying that today, but it's really important to just breathe that in and live with it and figure out then what can it be. That's the idea behind recalibrating, right? If it can't be what I know, how can I recalibrate to make it something I would still enjoy? Okay, and then the last, um, oh, there's, uh, sorry. The next thing he talks about is reinforcement. So what do we have that can help us? And this was interesting. He talked about the value of face masks. In other countries, face masks, face masks communicate to one another that we are taking this seriously and that I care about you. So, wear a face mask. It also will prevent you from spreading the disease to someone if you're asymptomatic, meaning you show no symptoms. If you aren't showing the symptoms, but you carry the virus, wearing that mask will help you keep you from giving it to others. It may or may not prevent you from getting it, but if you're careful, it's absolutely going to help. So it's time for everybody to have their masks. And then we're looking for effective treatments. That's going on right now in the science community. There are more than 100 existing and experimental drugs that are being looked at for COVID-19. Those are treatments, meaning you already have it. You are sick, and these are treatments. They're not preventative things. And then there's this idea of immunity passports, which I had never thought about it this way. But there's talk of creating, um, this is the, the immunity passport is the metaphor, but the idea is you've, 
gotten the disease, you've gotten the virus, you've survived the virus, you have the antibodies, we expect that you are going to be resistant to the disease. You get this immunity passport. It, um, I think in China they use a yellow card, whatever that is. The problem is, and this is a very American thing, I could see this absolutely, is it creates incentives for people to go deliberately get sick or to game the system with counterfeits. And that is so American. So I'm just saying we are not so good at um, following the rules all the time. So I could see this happening. So it, it's, the, it's a very high contrary to doing something like this. And then, of course, the thing we need the most, and this is what we are desperately, we're seeing, I think, in my opinion, some of our strongest leaders do this. The key to success truly is cooperation and collaboration. We are a scientific and biomedical powerhouse. The U.S. has got their shit together when it comes to technology, science, and biomedicine. But we need to do it in a massive, coordinated, government-led initiative. A patchwork approach to fighting this pandemic is really dangerous. And so when you hear kind of this every man for himself approach coming from the federal government, that's not a good way to respond. We really need to work together. We need innovators, visionaries, individual contributors, um, scientists, all the smart people, including you. It's all of us being smart about this. This is how it's going to change, but we need to be willing to work together. That's adapting. That's resilience. It's all those words that are good, healthy words that are what show when biological creatures survive, they have those traits. Go back to seventh grade biology. You remember adapt, adaptation, resilience. Those are big words that are really important. And look at that. And Ed Young uses it in his article for his last thing we need to have, which is resilience. Before the pandemic, he's, so he studied the United States responses to epidemics and things over time. And he's noted that our country, it's apparently this must be American culture. We are trapped in a cycle of panic and then neglect. So we get all worried about something and then we're like, oh, that's done. And we move on to the next thing. <laughs> that's me on every project. I get so excited about the beginnings. I'm not so good at the endings. So what we're worried about right now is that in this case, the U.S. might actually be moving too quickly into the neglect and didn't even finish the panic part. And that is a real worry because Again, this pandemic, you can't see it, but it is out there. So there's a lot of victim blaming in the U.S. that comes from this neoliberal perspective where it's your fault if you have bad circumstances. So what that's saying, neoliberal means the opposite. Remember, that's the opposite. So the, the idea is the people who are suffering most right now from this illness are the people who have the jobs that, that won't let them work from home. These are the people who don't have access to healthcare in the same way or um, absolutely just have to work because they're so broke. So we, then we blame these people for taking the transit or not staying at home or doing the things they have to do to survive. We blame them and it's this vicious cycle. So we cannot be in the position of victim blaming. We have psychological resilience. It exists, interestingly, among large groups of people who've already been marginalized. So if you've looked to, at um, people who are writing essays about what this feels like, if you go back to the AIDS outbreak when it first was taking off before we got a lot of medications, people were ostracized. They were set aside. They were ignored. It was their fault. They were blamed. People who have handicaps or disabilities have learned the world doesn't work the way, like they already know how to adapt to a world that hasn't adapted to them, right? So people that have differences have already figured out how to adapt to a world that's not made for them. And that's really where this comes from. There's disability um, scholars have written about something called crip time, which of course is a derogatory term, but the meaning is and the attention is that it's having a flexible attitude toward timing that comes from uncertainty, which is something the rest of us need to learn that just because we want it now doesn't mean we get it now. Just because I used to do it that way doesn't mean you get to do it that way moving forward. It's really moving from kind of a spoiled brat point of view to a much more cooperative, collaborative, 
community-based view. And if you've had any sort of hardship in your life, you know that's how it's done. And in fact, most of you have, if you have small children, nothing will ground you faster than thinking you're going to go out to dinner when your child then sits down on the floor and throws a tantrum and you realize this isn't going to go my way. I can do everything I want to demand something change, but it's not going to go my way. So that is my pessimistic way of being optimistic because I actually think we're fully capable of this change. We're fully capable of manifesting change. We need to calibrate our own desires, wants, and needs to be more reasonable or to be maybe more compassionate and empathetic. And off we go. The article is called Our Pandemic Summer. It's in the Atlantic. It is absolute worth reading. And um, I know I, it's my soapbox of the day. I'm kicking my soapbox back under the table as I introduce Michelle Quay, who, um, interestingly enough, ironically enough, can possibly relate to a little of this, as she's come from a whole other country and has had a very different life situation than many of us. And so I'm super excited to have you here, Michelle. Um, why don't you go? I'm going to stop sharing and Go ahead and introduce yourself because I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. And, and th that was a great information. And, you know, what I was just sharing this the other day, you know, um, and you're right, you know, being an immigrant and coming from a different country and being the person living with disability, it's, I've learned to adapt. And I, I, I don't think you could put it any better way than the word adapt. And I think a lot of listeners can probably relate to this. And there's a quote by uh, Charles Darwin, and I put, it, I put it down in one of my email lists. And it goes, it is not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. Be oh my God, I love that. Responsive to change. That doesn't mean sitting on the floor and crying. I mean, you can do that for a few minutes. But after that, you got to get back up, right? Right. And it's all about our ability to adapt to the changes that, that's coming towards us. And so just a quick synapse of who I am. So I'm a life coach. I met, I met Jennifer through the coaching program. And it's been an amazing journey to get to here. Um, currently, I'm working with Negative South Talker to help them to release the fear for judgment and just fear in general so that they can feel more confident about themselves in front of everybody, in, in front of what they do, and be confident about what, who they are. So those are the type of clients I'm working with. And it really goes back to my own story of my own journey. Um, so for the first 30 years of my life, I lived always in that life of being plain small. And the reason why I am disabled is it goes back to my experience in when I was 11 years old. So I was born in Taiwan. I was raised in Taiwan. My dad used to belong to the military. So growing up, you know, I have a really strict um, rules to follow. Certain time, you gotta get up, you gotta fold your, make your bed, go to breakfast, and this is how much you eat. And we, we ration in our family. So we have, um, I have two siblings. So on the dinner table, you can only get a portion of that. You gotta share with your siblings. So I, there's never a time where, you know, I can have a little more than anybody else. So growing, growing up, it was like that, very strict, very rule. Uh, you know, I have to abide by the rule in the house. And when I was 11 years old, my mom, one day she was, late coming to pick me up from, from school. So I was just playing with my friend and I saw my mom coming. So I wanted to meet her on the other side of the street. So I started crossing the street. And as I got to the middle of the street, I heard my best friend it was just shouting. She was saying, stop, stop. And I heard like, there's a so much emotion. There's so much motion that was just going around me that by the time I realized it, I woke up in the hospital. I was already in bed completely blacked out. I don't remember any of the incidents of the detail of what had happened. Was it a car? Was it something that, you know, I hit? I don't remember any of that. And all these details of the moment that I went down, what all came from my family member, my friends, they were telling me, you know, you got hit by a car and this is why you're here. So I had to um, depending on others to fill in the details for me. And that whole period section was gone. So I woke up in the hospital, I was lay, laying there in bed and I looked down, I just felt like something was tight, something was straining me. And so I looked down 
And I noticed that from my waist all the way to my ankle, I was wrapped with plaster. And it was just tight because I guess um, during that time, the, the injury had caused a lot of swelling. So I felt really tight and it was very uncomfortable and painful. Um, so I was there and I, I was still trying to comprehend at 11 years old, like what was going on and what does that mean for me? I got sent home after, after the uh, uh, recovery to, to recover. So that whole three months, um, I couldn't go to my bedroom. My bedroom in Taiwan, it's a two-story house. So I had, my bedroom is on the second floor. So I can't go up to the stairs. My parents decided they're going to set up a section of the living room and just have a bed for me so I can hang out in the living room. Initially, it was great. It was 11 years old. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to do any homework. That's like the best thing in my life. I mean, <laughs> I can't possibly be asking more than that. A couple of weeks into it, I start, it start kicking in. I start to realize that this, this is a change for me. I no longer will be able to hang out with my friend. I no longer will be able to see them. I wonder how they're doing in school. So it's kind of like isolation at home at 11 years old. I can't go out to play with anymore. And that was just really hard to adjust. And, and so I start to pick up that sense of entitlement. You know, you know how I was saying that, you know, my dad, we need to ration. And each one of us in the, in the house, we get a fair amount. But when things start to change, I developed that sense of entitlement. I had a lot of anger towards what had happened. You know, why does it have to be me? Why, why did I, um, why am I the one who had that injury? Why am I the one sleeping here? Why am I the one who got stuck here? So I start to have that resentment and entitlement that my parents owe this to me. So I tell people what to do. I told my sister what to do. I was just really good at directing people of what to do so that it, they, can, they can come and provide for me because I felt that they owed it to me. From 11 years old to 15 years old, I got sent to a recovery rehab center where it, it was located in Taipei. And the way that this, the, the rehab center work is that the kids will live there by themselves and parents can only come visit them during the weekend. Um, we can go home on the weekend, but on the most part, on Monday through Friday, we have to be there. And there's school that we go to, there's teacher there, and I do physical, re uh, physical uh, therapy there. So I lived there for four years, kind of just, um, I would consider that as a, as a boarding school. So I was there for four years just by That's myself. That's a long time. Four years is a long time. Four years, yeah, by myself. And that's 11 to, or 12 to, to 15. Yeah, so that's uh, like, yeah. Your pre those that middle school years basically where your whole body's changing, everything else is going on too, right? Yes, yes, and and good point because now because during that time I came, uh, I had my first period. Oh yeah, I was panicking. I remember when I first got my period, I was panicking. Even though my mom already prepared me, she's like, "Oh, this is you're gonna go through this, and you're gonna feel, you're gonna see the changes, and you're gonna." Don't panic, it's natural. She already prepared me for that, but when it happened, I was there by myself. And I was panicking, I, I went to the, to the payphone. Back then we had the payphone on the wall. I pick up the payphone, I call my mom, I say, mom, you know, I, I'm having my first period. My parents came the next day and brought me to a, to a um, convenience shop and, and to get those uh, feminine products. I came back and it was still very uncomfortable because it was something that I wanted to be close to my mom so I can ask her questions know, and just yeah. feel like someone's there. And I remember one of his doctors came by and, and he was doing like a round, you know, like a clinical round and he came to my bed and he must have heard that I got my period. And I, I was just pretending to be sleeping because I kind of feel embarrassed about, you know, the fact that I'm not having period. So he came up to my bed and he said something to me and he said, oh, look at you, you're a woman now. And for a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, it was just, what does that mean? Do I need, do I need to feel bad about, you know, having a period? Like, like, what does that mean? So I took it as, you know, I did something wrong. I should be shameful of it because of the way that he was saying it. It's not what he said. It's how he said it. How he said it was so condescending, how very disrespectful 
to 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 a 13 year old woman a young yeah. woman who just turned woman and i remember that incident so clearly that because I, I feel like I was traumatized from that. I feel ashamed. I was shame. ashamed. Stupid shame. I hate shame. Yes. Yeah. So it was like that growing up from 11 year old to 15 years old. It was just by myself trying to figure things out. And I made a lot of friends. And a lot of these friends, they also have physical disability. And some of them actually are, um, they have polio. So they can't even walk. They, they have to rely on sitting in the wheelchair. So in a way, you know, I kind of felt, you know, I'm at a much more superior position because I can at least walk, right? Walking with assistance, still I will be able to land on my two, on my both legs compared to them. So I was doing a lot of comparison to, oh, I'm so much better than they are, you know? So that superiority starts to kicking in. By age 15, my, my parents got the uh, permission to come to United States. So we came to United States. And back then, I didn't speak English at all, like zero English. So the most fluent sentence I could say is, this is a desk and that is a hamburger. <laughs> I guess those are the essential. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, oh, it's like my Spanish in the Biblioteca, right? Can we all can talk about the library? Yeah. Yeah. What is, so, a ha- what, is that a hamburger? Oh, that's a good sentence, yeah, yeah, the hamburger and Coke. They, they taught us how to say Coke. So I can have hamburger and Coke. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was hard. It was a struggle. I remember going to a KFC one day, and I was looking up the menu. And back then, we don't have order by number. You go out there, you, it's all words. Um, now it's easier, number one, number two, right? But back then, it was all words. Dark me, light me, you know, like chicken wing. I didn't know the difference. So it was a struggle of learning how to speak in English and communicate with friends. I wanted to make friends. I wanted to start making friends who I can relate with, um, but I couldn't. I don't know how to communicate with them. So I ended up hanging around in a small circle where everyone speaks Chinese, everyone speaks Mandarin, everyone speak the same, came from the same culture. So I, I had a little, little tiny circle that would accept me to, to who I am. And you know, the other thing I was dealing with at that time was my doctor had given me a pair of really ugly metal bracelet. And he said, here, Michelle, you're going to be wearing these for till you're 18 years old when you stop growing. I said, oh, okay. And they're so hideous. I have never seen such an ugly pair of shoes in my life. They're metal. So these are, they're metal. Okay, so they're shoes with the... They're, sh- they're metal, metal bracelet that you wear on your, sh- on, on your leg. It protects, it straightens your leg. Okay. And on the bottom, there's a shoe that, that's already pre-made shoe that's attached to it. And it's open toes and black. Really ugly. I, think I had a friend who had cerebral palsy, and I think I know what you're talking about, because they're uglier than crap, and they're all about functionality, not about fashion at all. Yeah. Okay. Not at all. So I, I was trying, you know, I was 16 then, you know, 15, 16. I was trying to be pretty. I look around, you know, these girls are wearing makeup, they start dressing up, they have mini skirt, and I used to buy all these baggy, really extra large clothes so that I can hide every piece of my body so that no one would notice I have these ugly shoes on me. And it was just very difficult to adjust with all these peer pressure that's coming in. So by 16, I said, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm going to take it off. I don't want it. I don't want to wear it. They're not very comfortable in the summer. You know, it's really hot and, and I don't want to wear them anymore. So I took them out. And which is a, such a bad decision that I made because once I get, I took it out, my whole body weight started to weighing down on my leg. And so what happened is my weight actually created this permanent damage and created this disfigure on my leg. So by, by the time I reached to college, I could no longer walk in distance. In order to walk, walk long distance, and long distance I mean like a block or two, yeah. I had to use some kind of a system. And my mom was my perfect assistant back then. And everywhere I go, I would hold on to her hand. And everywhere she goes, I would go with her and with her hand, holding her hand. So she was my crutch for a very, very long time. Wow. 
when I got to college, I had to live in a dorm. So I got away, you know, I, I went away to college and I couldn't bring my mom. My mom couldn't come to the campus with me. So I had to figure out a way to mobilize myself and to walk. So I ended up using two crutches um, to, to help me to walk. And ever since then, I've been using these two crutches. So it was just one thing after another. And it was all about my body image. Every time I got really I started to get really, really conscious about my body image. Every time I stand in front of the mirror, I couldn't look at myself. I never appreciated myself. I can never look at my full body picture. Every time I walk and go to a sh uh, shopping center, when I try it on clothes, I would purposely just put it on and never buy the bottom. Like I never buy any pants from anywhere. Um, the only pants that I get are from my mom. My mom used to shop for me and then she would buy them. And because I'm really short, um, I'm only four feet, four inches tall. So every pair of pants that I get, we all have to, I, I have to customize it. So my mom is doing a lot of these sewing and tailoring it down and customize it. And that's another thing about the society. The society never, never make anything that's one size fits all. And in order for people to be able to fit in there, I either have to pay extra, extra money, or I have to somehow find a way to, to make it work for me. And there's, it just applies to so many different things that it's not a custom made thing. It's never personalized. It's like one size fits all, here you go, just make it work. Um, so it was like that, even with buying clothes. And I was always ashamed of seeing my body in front of the mirror. So I never liked to have my body um, in front of the mirror and I never liked to have my picture being taken because in order for me to uh, have a, if you were to take a picture and send it to me, I would feel really ashamed of looking at my own picture. Like, oh, that's really ugly. And I don't like that feeling. So I don't like my picture being taken. So that, that's just a lot of judgment on myself and going into relationship and going on to date, Oh, it just made the matter worse. I can deal I with the, my own. Those are the yeah. most self-conscious moments, right? Like, because you suddenly can't help but see yourself how they might see you. Mm -hmm. So it, I mean, that's where I fall apart because it's just so, it's so revealing and it brings up every inadequacy you've ever have, especially if they're body inadequacies. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I always am so jealous of people with bodies whose bodies are regular because having a big body, I have a big body. It's not regular. And I totally understand that feeling of. Yeah. And it's a lot of comparison. Like every time yes. I go to social media, right, you see all these women, they're wearing like little tiny tight, you know, bathing suit. I can't do that. I, I can only wear something that's large, extra large so that I can cover every single part of me. And I get really jealous of seeing people wearing these body con dress, you know, they're so cute and very sexy. And when you go into dates, you want to dress up to impress that person. You want to dress up and look pretty for that person. And, and it's about dressing up to please the other person. So in hoping that that person will, will return your affection and love you back. Yeah, right. right. So I was, I was entering that stage where I was doing everything to please that person so that that person would love me back. And there were so many things that I have done, like trying to be so hard to be someone else I am not when I go on date, you know, talking about different things and, and just pretending that I am normal. Normal. I was going to say normal. Going for the normal. Going for the normal. And, <laughs> and, and I don't fit into that normal. So... So I end up, every time I get a reject, I categorize myself as being abnormal. There's something wrong with me. This is why they don't want to be with me. This, there's something wrong with me, and therefore I can never have the management's job because when, what do they look at? They look at the person who's dressed up well. They, they're tall. They look um, authoritative. And and they have that first impression of how you look like on the outside. And me, I don't fit in that category. And I would try so hard to fit into something that's normal. So it was like that. My life, that's how my life was. Kept every single step. It was a struggle for 30 years. For 30 years of my life, that's what I was going through. One day, 
I woke up and I was just crying for no fucking reason. Um, it was just no fucking reason. I woke up and I was crying. And I remember telling myself, you know, Michelle, you spent 40 years of your life living this way. Like, if you have another 40 years of your life, how are you gonna, how are you gonna make it? Like, you're not gonna make it like this. You're not gonna make it. What do you wanna do? And then the moment I got curious about what I wanna do, I, I, I got up the next day, I went to Target. I bought myself a balancing ball. I came home with a balancing ball. Like of all things, you know, I thought about balancing ball. I bought the balancing ball back. I said, well, I can run, I can jump, I can't do any uh, heavy, heavy weight, weight lifting or anything like that. Maybe I can just rock on the ball back and forth. I can do that. You know, that's easy. I can sit on it. So I sat on it for two weeks, rocking myself back and forth, start slowly. And I was also paying attention to what I eat. And, you know, I calculated out and, and you know, my other role is being a pharmacist. So I'm capable of, you know, calculating out my own uh, total calorie that I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I did my math. I said, okay, Michelle, so this is how much you can eat. So I start watching my diet. I started watching my diet. I started paying attention to my body. And the minute I start doing that, I said, oh, well, all right. So maybe let me try something new. Maybe, maybe that new thing would be going to a gym and sign up a membership. I don't know what I was going to do there. Maybe I can go swim, but I'm going to go and, and try, try it out. So I went, uh, went into the gym and signed up as a membership. And I, you know, initially I was just doing swimming and I was passing by people who's on the treadmill. I said, well, wouldn't that be nice if I can be on the treadmill and walking or, you know, do whatever that I can do. I said, what do I need to do? How, what do I need to do in order to get onto the treadmill? So I said, well, there's personal trainer. I mean, that's their job to train you to become physical, right? So let me just hire a personal trainer and see. And they're quite expensive. They're not cheap. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I said, well, let me just hire a personal trainer because they're professionals. Let them help me. So I went, I went and hired a personal trainer and then we, we started working and we set up some goals and at that time, my friends were coming back from Peru. They were coming back from hiking trip. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to participate in those conversations where people are talking about going to a hike on the weekend or going out to, to hike somewhere? Wouldn't it be nice to participate in those conversations? So I went to my personal trainer and I told him, you know, um, I, I have a goal here. I have a new goal here. I think I want to go hike. He said, oh, great. Where do you want to hike? Like the little hill over here or that mountain over here? I said, well, I don't want to hike these. I want to hike the seven wonders of the world. I want to go to Machu Picchu. And he said, you want to do what? <laughs> what, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go hike Machu Picchu. And he paused for a minute and he goes, Michelle, I know you're very ambitious and I have no doubt you're going to be able to do that. But maybe do you think that maybe we can try something smaller? <laughs> and, like, can we start with the hill over here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he said, maybe, maybe you want to try that first before you go to Machu Picchu. No, I want to go to Machu Picchu. And I said, you're going to help me with that. So ever since then, our goal was to get me to Machu Picchu. So he had me do a lot of weight training, resistance training, conditioning, you know, I was doing ball slam all day long. And I was getting to the point where I'm able to walk on the treadmill. He trained me how to walk on the treadmill. It was like a huge success for me. I was clapping my hands. I was like, yay, I am on the treadmill. I'm walking. I was walking very slowly with uh, holding on to yeah, the side. Holding right? on. But yeah, still, I get it. Yeah, but still, I was walking on the treadmill. It was such a big accomplishment. I'm like, you know, Machu Picchu, I got this. So a <laughs> couple of months later, I booked myself a ticket to Peru. I packed my bag, took my two, two uh, pink fusion crutches, they're pink fusion, two crutches, got onto the plane, and I flew to Peru. And when I got to Peru, it was, so it's a four-day hike, 26 miles total, 
four-day hike all uphill and the elevation is higher so generally people will get high altitude syndrome which i got a high altitude syndrome not to the point where i need to have oxygen tank but my body was all swollen i i found myself i keep having to stop i get tired very easily so i have to stop and you know catch up my breath and then go um two days before my hike i got stomach flu and, and it was all part of the, the side effects from having that high altitude. That's what I was going to say. That's usually, I'm usually barfing when it's like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I checked myself into the hospital. I checked myself into the infirmary in Peru. And I remember that, that night, you know, I call, I call my sister. I said, you know, I got, I got sick and here I am in the hospital. And my sister was like, you need to get your ass home. You need to get your ass home right now. You're going to die in Peru. I love it. I was listening to her and I said, you know, I came out this far, I got this, I can do this. I had to convince her. And I told her, you know, I even bought a helicopter insurance in case I drop dead in, in, in the middle of the mountain and someone can go and lift me up. So I even told her that and I said, you know, I'm going to do this. Leader sat me down and he said, Michelle, I noticed that you were walking slow and you know you had to stop multiple times and you barely made it today to our campsite. After day one, there's no no going back. Can you do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Because if you change your mind, we can get you out. We can still, we can still uh, go back. I said, nope, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go finish the hike. I was really determined to finish the hike. And he, he ended up suggesting that, you know, instead of waking up seven o'clock in the morning to hike, he suggested that I wake up five o'clock. That would give me two hours extra to catch up and to be ahead of oh. um, all the whole entire team. And I would be able to, to cut it, meet, meet them on, on time. So I said, great. So every day from that, there on, I wake up five o'clock in the morning, still dark outside, put on my hair light, and I, I just start hiking in the dark. Every day that I did that, um, and, and it was just to the last day at the, at the Machu Picchu uh, High, the Inca Trail, um, there's last 50 steps before you go into the sun gate. So you look up, and the, uh, the, the slope of the stairs is about 60 to 70 degree angle. And that's the you, stairs at the Machu Picchu, the, the stairs up the thing, right? Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super and steep. Yeah. Okay. Super steep and super narrow. So yeah. it was really hard for me to land on my crutches. I looked up and I was like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> but that was my last 50 steps. I had to finish it because then it would be, you know, easy, easier. Um, so I stood there. I was thinking, how do I get, get to this? I paused and I gave my crutches to my team leader, took out my day pack, handed it to him. I said, you go meet me up on the, on the top. And he, he, he got up there like in two seconds. For me, I got, on, got, down, got down to my hands and knees. I start crawling every step, 50 steps, every step I crawl. Crawl up to the top, to the middle. I was telling them, because there's someone else in, in the back behind me to make sure that, you know, he, he was doing a documentary for me. So he was shooting, taking pictures. And I turned around and I said, you know, can I have two lunches today? Because <laughs> all I could think about was food. I just wanted to get to food. I wanted to get to food. <laughs> My body was exhausted. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't think I can move on anymore. Um, can I just have two lunches, please? <laughs> That's what I asked. Got to the top. So accomplished. I, 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 the, the team leader handed me back the two crutches. I held it up and it was like a, this victory shape. I'm like, yes, I did it. And I was looking down. Oh my God, holy shit. How did I come up here? <laughs> it was just very steep. Turn around, went inside in, into the sun gate. And there's all these visitors uh, coming from all over the country and they were all resting and people were like really beat up. And they, were, they, they saw me coming in. They all got up and they were all clapping and cheering. And oh. it was 
I broke down in tears. I was speechless. I felt so accomplished. And, and I'm like, thank you. Yes, yes. And people were like, yay, you made it. And I said, no, we made it. We made it. And, and in that moment, I was thinking, you know, had I not had these amazing visitors who passed me by and kept clapping to me or keep giving me thumb up, I would never have made it to the last moment. And, and that was the moment I realized my purpose in this life is to inspire others so that they want to start taking action. That is my purpose. My purpose is to inspire others to take action. And I was so beyond belief that this is the journey I had to come to this far to find my purpose. And it was just such an amazing experience. I came home, I was so inspired. I started to think about like, okay, so now I know what my purpose is. How do I deliver it? How do I deliver this purpose to someone else so that they can benefit from what I have to share? And so I started to look into uh, coaching and one of my friends actually mentioned the word coach, life coach to me because he was looking for a life coach for his nephew who has schizophrenia. And I said, oh, life coach, what is that? So I came home, I was doing a Google search and I found life coach, someone who partner and inspire others to take action. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. That is me. <laughs> so I went even a little further. I said, okay, so if this is the tool I'm gonna be using, how do I make it legit? How do I make it so that, you know, I, am, I have that credibility of this is solid, this is certified. So I went to um, iPad coaching because they res really resonated with me in terms of raising consciousness one person at a time. That was like, yes, that's where I was, you know, having that consciousness, being aware of I am bigger than, than I think I am. Having that awareness is what brought me here. So that totally resonated with me. So I said, okay, so this is it. It was like taking a big chunk out of my saving account to, to do this whole coaching program versus, you know, I can spend like $2,000 and just spend a weekend and be overdone with it. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be something that's um, credible and something that I can provide people to, to, to help them with the actual tool. So I went through that. And here I am, um, a life coach. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, and the thing is, is that when we met, I just, you know, you can talk about your story, but the thing is, is it comes off of you. Like, you know, I, we just hit it off. I just adored you from when I met you. And I'm, I'm like, this woman's so special. But the thing is, is it just exudes from you. And I think, first of all, I learned the lessons are you're never too old. So, you know, I tell this to people all the time. They wonder what does a life coach do? And why are they helpful? But they're helpful because sometimes you need to need somebody on your team that's helping you get out from under all the crap that you've layered on yourself. And I think you tell that story really well, which is we have so, how we perceive ourselves can actually be those damn uh, braces that were holding, that were holding you back. I mean, I know there were consequences of cutting off, loose the shackles, but you, 40 years later, really did cut loose the shackles mm -hmm. and got to do your dream, which, by the way, I would have loved to have seen your trainer when you came home and I'm like, here's a poster for you. This I am your greatest <laughs> accomplishment. I mean, your trainer must have just been through the roof, too, because talk about feeling validated as a trainer. Damn. Yeah. But it's not too late. And self-perception can change. It's absolutely in our power. Yeah. And I, I remember I, I, I went, I came, I went on to the, uh, when I came, came down from the mountain, I texted him. I texted him, hey, listen, I just finished my hike. He's like, I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, of course he did. I mean, yes, of course. This is the person who said, I'm going to get on the treadmill. And he's like, okay, all right, let's do it. I mean, sure. Yeah. And that, and that, it, it fit. I love this message, Michelle, and I thank you so much for being on today because it goes with the meta message of this pandemic, right? It goes with this idea of what is survival, what happens when the life you knew before changes. Is that a bad thing or is it just a new opportunity? And I know there's a bunch of us out here who are eternal optimists, 
but it really is a new opportunity. And the idea of adapting and being resilient is everything. Being smart, using your noggin, listen to your kids, listen to other people's ideas, you know, be open because we really don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And so, yeah, that the idea of really deciding what you want is so important. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's also important to realize that you don't have to do this alone. And for a long time, I felt I, I was doing it alone. I felt alone, right? I felt isolated. I, I felt no one understand me. But the truth is, like every person that I met, they were teaching me something. They were showing me something very valuable. And they were always there for me. You know, there's a lot of supporters who keep championing me and who cheer me. And even my personal trainer, I, I really consider him as my life coach. He was the one who, who showed me how to do things consistently so that you can have a result. And, and, you know, in a very good way, you know, he is the life coach for me, you know, training me to reach something that I was aiming for. And had I not had these people showing up in my life and had I not let these people to come in into my life, perhaps, you know, my life right now would be a different picture, a complete different outcome. So I really, I think I, I often tell people, you know, vulnerability is my superpower. And I think we all have that superpower somewhere. You just have to find it. So I'll ask if there's any questions for anybody on the line. And um, it's true. Yeah, being open, listening, and being, being aware of letting that stuff in. Like you let it in, and that's the big difference. You didn't shut it out. You said, mm -hmm. hey, I can listen. And I think that's everything. I want to thank you so much for coming today. This has been a great story. I can't wait to share it with everybody. And it's a perfect way to, to segue into the weekend where folks can um, I, relax. Is that what we do now? Some of us. We're I, happy hour. We do happy hour. Let me put happy on my, hour. Yeah, let me put on my uh, bar, bar scene. <laughs> That's right. So, so thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today, Michelle. Thanks for folks on the line who have been listening. And I hope we all have a wonderful weekend. Go look out. Go look for new opportunities. Go listen with your heart. Thanks, everybody.